0: We'll be reading Psalms 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him of glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish in the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good morning. Thank you, Jenna, for uh, leading us in that meditation. trust it was uh, good preparation for your heart as it was for mine to look into this passage. We find ourselves today in that liminal space between two sermon series. Uh, last week we finished our exposition of uh, Genesis. and in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we will start in on a study of the first two epistles to the Thessalonians. But um, in this sort of in-between week, I thought it might be good for us to consider another one of the Bible's rhetorical questions. Uh, Over the years, we've we've looked at a number of these uh, from who is a God like you to is the Lord's hand shortened or shall I bow down to a block of wood? Those sorts of things. It turns out that scripture is full of these. This could be a long sermon series if we allowed it to be. And as you're likely aware, uh, rhetorical questions are those that uh, take the form of a question. You know, they've got that telltale question mark at the end of the sentence. But really, it would be more appropriate to conclude with an exclamation point. uh, Because these questions aren't genuinely seeking answers. You know, the answers are somewhat supplied. They're at least implied very strongly. And rhetorical questions, they they function to make very strong statements. You know, they pack a more powerful punch than if you were to just state a simple fact. So for example, when when your mom asks you about that bruise on your brother's face, you know, you begin to explain that actually your hands were just resting at your side and, you know, he just happened to fall into your closed fist. And if you, if you say that, you know, your mom will very likely say something along the lines of, are you serious right now? What do I look like, an idiot? Do you think I was born yesterday? She might might, uh, just rattle off a litany, but all of these are rhetorical questions. And you kids need to know, if you don't know this by now, that those aren't actually questions that require an answer. In fact, if you did answer, chances are that you'll be in even bigger trouble. Those are rhetorical questions in which the answer is strongly implied. And that's a very effective way for your mom to let you know that, well, you're in trouble. Now rhetorical questions are sometimes used when you are in awestruck wonder, like when you see Niagara Falls for the first time. And if you can manage to speak at all in the face of such a sight, you might say something like, are you kidding me? Something like that, I don't know. Or or maybe you're out on a date with your wife, you know, and she's wearing that little black number, and she just looks radiant. So you say, are you you really mine? You simply can't believe that she agreed to marry a buffoon like you. Well, a similar kind of rhetorical question is really at the center here of Psalm 8, and we want to take a closer look at it. Um, so that it will prompt us towards the kind of, the same kind of praise that the psalmist had on his lips. So we'll work through this psalm and a related passage at the end, and we'll do so seeing five P's. Five P's. And the first is our praise. Our praise. This is a psalm of praise which might seem very obvious to you, but you should know that there are actually lots of different kinds of psalms, okay? In this psalter, in this collection, it's like the earliest hymn book. There's actually um, many different styles and genres of psalm. You've got psalms of lament. You've got royal psalms that you would sing at the coronation of a king at his enthronement. There's psalms of wisdom, psalms of thanksgiving, imprecatory psalms where you're calling upon the Lord to deal with your enemies and with his. And and I'm just naming a few of the categories, lots of different kinds of psalms. But this particular psalm fits very nicely in the category of a psalm of praise. Now, this praise song is meant to be sung by a congregation, and uh, I love that. I, that's one of my favorite things in the whole world is congregational singing. And uh, let me just say, you guys sounded wonderful today as you lifted up your voices together to give our God the praise that is due his name. the um, Same thing was taking place in those days. And you can tell that from the superscription. That's the smaller font at the very top of the psalm that's not really given a, a verse number. But it's helpful information nonetheless. This one tells us who the author is. tells us that this is a Psalm of David. And it also provides some musical instruction. So this one is for the choir master. Uh, This is to go right onto his desk so that he he knows what to do with it. He's going to assemble the congregation to sing this. And uh, we also read it's according to the Giddith, which is... Uh, no one really knows for sure, but it's most likely a musical instrument that um, perhaps originated in the Philistine area of Gath. And that's, that's what the experts believe, but essentially this is saying this song is best played on the giddeth. This is the kind of, some, some uh, music is organ music, some is best led by a piano, uh, others are guitar driven. This one is for the giddeth, whatever a giddeth is. Well, you'll notice that this song of praise begins and ends the same way. Um, with the chorus, if you will. You think, of, think of it in those terms. Look at verse 1 and compare that with verse 9. And those are the keynote, so to speak, of the whole thing. Uh, that's, that's really telling us when, it, when you begin that way and end that way, that tells you that that's holding the whole thing together. And uh, the whole psalm is revolving around the idea contained in this chorus. And the chorus, of course, is, "O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And if you're anything like me, and you were raised with the praise music of the 80s, then no doubt you have Sandy Patty or Michael W. Smith in your head right now. And that's, that's great really, because those are wonderful words to have in your head and on your lips. It's hard to think of anything better. In the psalm, we're acknowledging just how majestic the Lord is. Majesty, being majestic has to do with with the glory and the splendor associated with being royalty, with being a sovereign ruler who, who reigns magnificently. And in the Hebrew way of thinking and speaking, a person's name represented everything about them. It it really spoke to the entirety of their being, their nature. So that when we say that the Lord's name is majestic, of course, that means that everything about him is full of majesty. That's who he is. That's in the totality of his being, he is majestic. And neither is his majesty confined to a, a, one small corner of the globe, you know, in this region with this particular people. No, uh, we're, we're ascribing to the Lord the fact that his rule and his reign extends over all the earth. And therefore, the ends of the earth can attest to the majesty of his name. The psalmist goes further still, though, at the end of verse 1. To speak of the heavens, so we're not just talking about the earth. We're talking about what's even higher than the earth, this realm, where, you know, kind of up there, where there's angels and heavily, heavenly beings, who no doubt are are joining in this song. You know, we read elsewhere in scripture of the fact that these heavenly beings, these angels, all day long are praising and worshiping um, our God in. In the majesty, in the splendor of his holiness. But the psalmist goes even further still. Take, take note of that. Um, he says that God's glory reaches even higher than that. He says you have set your glory above the heavens. This is, this is an exalted majesty that we're dealing with here. Now, the, I want you to understand that the, the Lord is, is worthy of our praise because his majesty and his dominion know no boundaries. He's the great God of highest heaven, as we've sung, and his glory occupies every space. From, from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths, he, our God is indescribable. He's uncontainable. He is majestic and therefore worthy of our praise. But as astounding as it is to contemplate his transcendence, if I could use that fancy word. I'm, I'm speaking of his vastness, his aboveness, if that's even a word, as, as wonderful it is as it is to contemplate that, there's even something more astounding as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sad to say that I very often miss this detail. I've missed this detail, um, I, or at least I've rushed past it far too often in, in my lifetime. And I think of that 80s praise song, I don't want to blame the, the praise song, but I think it must have a little bit to do with why I kind of rush over this part. You know, we sing, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic it." And you know that the the way that song goes, the, the first Lord and then a couple of syllables on majestic get all of the stress. And you're kind of, you're, you sing quickly past a certain little three-letter word, which makes it, that little word seem insignificant. But if we were to really slow down and consider it, it would be hard to be. Imagine anything more significant. I'm referring to that little word "our. O oh Lord, our Lord. This Lord, whose majesty fills the heavens and the earth, who sits enthroned above it all, that Lord is our Lord. The, the transcendent God of the universe, has condescended to to claim us as his people, the the sheep of his pasture. And words can't even describe how precious that is, how that three-letter word, that tiny little word, our, has the potential to fill you with joy unspeakable. And, And it has the power to chase away all of your fears. Think about it. If, if this majestic Lord that we've been describing is ours, if this God is yours, if, it, if, if he is for you, who could possibly be against you? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. In case you're wondering, think about all the implications of this. This, this, has, this little word, our, has the potential to fill you with with full the fullness of joy. He is your God. He is our God. What can man do to us? Is there anything that we have to fear when we have a God who sits enthroned above the whole world and he's our God? So that's a little bit about the object of our worship, the majestic Lord, our majestic Lord. Is there anything to note about the subjects of praise. And by that I mean the people that are doing the praising. As a matter of fact, yes, that's the focus of verse two. And verse two, I'll have you note, know, is much more than just a pickup line. Although it does seem to me that it would be a great pickup line. So single guys, if you're, here's some free advice here. If, if the situation ever arises that you have a crush on a, on a cute girl that's on a worship team you could say something like the Bible must have been talking about you when it says out of the mouth of babes he's ordained praise you, that one's for free you can guys you can use that but of course that's not what the psalmist means by babes he means newborns. He's talking about nursing babies, infants, puny little kids. This is who the Lord determines to have praise Him. This is who the Lord delights to have praise Him. The weakest, the most insignificant, at least in the world's eyes, the, the wimpiest. That's who the Lord loves to strengthen and instill with songs of praise. Why? That doesn't make sense to us, does it? We, we wonder, why? why is that God's MO? What, what is his motivation? And verse 2 continues, because of his foes, to still the enemy and the avenger, to shut them up. You know, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, when he writes, But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low in despise and despised in the world, even things that are not, in order to bring to nothing the things that are. I, I just love the way that the Lord works. And we have a perfect illustration of this, Psalm 8, 2, in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. In in Matthew chapter 21, there's other places in the gospel where we see something similar, but in Matthew chapter 21, we read that one day, and this is the same day that the Lord is overturning tables in the temple. He's... um, you know, making whips and driving out money changers who are making a mockery out of the house of the Lord. Um, what happens after that is he goes on to heal the blind and the lame, people that are coming to him in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes are seeing all of this. They're witnessing this. And, th- you know, they, these things don't seem very wonderful to them they also witnessed a group of children in the temple crying out to Jesus, saying, Hosanna, son of David. And when the scribes and the Pharisees heard that, they were indignant. They tried to rebuke Jesus. They, they said, are you, Jesus, are you hearing this? Do you, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus, quoting our passage, says, Yeah. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And it's interesting, do you you understand what Jesus' connection means about the scribes and the Pharisees? It means that they are enemies and foes that need to be silenced. And earlier, earlier in his ministry, we overheard Jesus praying to his father he said something like this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and from the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is the will of God to confound the wise by revealing his will and his ways to the weakest so as to bring him maximum glory. And I don't know how you're feeling about the terminology that Jesus and the psalmist are using to describe you. I think it's generally true that, you know, we usually resist those kind of labels. We'll typically react negatively if someone says something like, Dave, you're such a baby. Grow up. You know, you're acting like a child. I've heard that plenty of times in my life, and it, 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 I wince at it. It's not very, not very comfortable. We like to be viewed as, as strong and wise and mature and having everything together. But I hope, I hope you can see that our humble station results in the maximum amount of glory for God, as well as a maximum amount of embarrassment for his enemies. This is God's gracious economy, and it's all for his glory. Well, let's look to the second P, which is found in verse 3. I want you to consider our perspective. Our perspective. If, if we ourselves are in need of a little bit of humbling so that we might understand our proper position, it's always a good exercise to lie on your back some clear night and to look at the sky. And not only is it a beautiful display of, of um, just, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just breathtaking in its beauty. But, but an added benefit is, is it gives you a real accurate perspective on things. You know, our perspective is often skewed since we spend most of our time looking inward, and uh, looking outward, just kind of on the horizontal plane, we loom large in our own lives, and other people loom large in our view, so that, so that our scale, our, the proportion of everything is off. It's, it's skewed. I love the title that Ed Welch gave to one of his books, When People Are Big and God is Small. That's such a good title because... That happens so much in our view. And as I say, focusing so long inwardly and outwardly at other people, it really distorts the scale of things, the actual true scale. We end up making man, ourselves, the unit of measure, the standard by which other things are measured. One uh, philosopher from history, man by the name of Protagoras, he famously said that man is the measure of all things. And even though he lived 2,500 years ago, that adage, that maxim that he um, brought forward is still largely how most people operate. It's the basis of secular humanism and other uh, faulty worldviews to consider that man is the measure of all things. It was, it was exactly 80 years ago uh, that Dr. James Conant, president of Harvard University, he addressed the graduating class. And um, he spoke in that speech on the difference between kind of the idea, two different worldviews that would compete against each other. On the one hand, you have the spirit of the Renaissance, which was kind of exalting in man's ability and capability. And on the other hand, you have the spirit of the Reformation, which reflected this, you know, God-entranced vision that the Puritans had, the founders of Harvard had. So in that speech, um, Dr. Conant told a story which he freely admits might be apocryphal, but that he loves anyway, even, even if it was fabricated a bit. He loves the story that became something of Harvard folklore. He loves it for how it illustrates how these two different perspectives kind of compete against each other. And the story goes that when Harvard was in the process of building Emerson Hall, which is uh, the building that was to house their philosophy department. The design of that building called for an an engravement. In the, in the stone above the columns at the entrance to the building. And the philosophy professors, they decided that carved into that stone should be uh, that philosophical maxim from Protagoras, you know, that says, man is the measure of all things. However, the president at that time, Charles Eliot, he uh, quietly overruled this And when the professors returned from their summer break, they discovered that the building was nearly complete and etched into the stone above those columns were the words, what is man that thou art mindful of him? (laughs) That was a great correction. Uh, But those are the competing views and I don't think I need to elaborate just how much our world views the former rather than the latter. As being the measure. So looking upwards rather than inwards or outwards gives you the right perspective. In verse 3, the psalmist is on his back at night, and perhaps he's in the field with his flock of sheep. I don't know exactly. But he's looking up at that sky that is just sparkling with innumerable stars. A brilliant moon. The kind of display that instantly makes you understand the the vastness of the universe. It makes you feel like palpably your own comparative insignificance. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it's good. It's good for you to have that experience. To contemplate stars and galaxies and solar systems to wonder at the size of the universe. It has the effect of instantly calibrating the scale as to what it actually is. You know, when when Pluto is small and God is big, then when that's happening, then I am actually just an infinitesimal speck. The heavens, the sun, and the moon, and the stars, the psalmist says, are the work of a majestic Lord's fingers. And you're probably more familiar with the expression, the work of someone's hands. You know, we employ our whole hands to do stuff. That's used many times in scripture to describe God's creative work. That's what his hands do. But the psalmist is even more descriptive here, isn't he? He he, he's having us imagine that setting the heavenly bodies in place is the work of God's fingers, which means I think that he's basically just like flicking them out there, like it was no big deal for him, like it was a, an easy feat. But how's that per, for perspective? That's a that's a rhetorical question too. <laughs> that gives you good perspective. That. That proper perspective leads inevitably to the next P, which we find in verse 4. It should lead us to our perplexity. Our perplexity. And the psalmist's perplexity is seen in the rhetorical question that lies at the heart of this song. I've been alluding to it, and so it's time to get right to it. So when, he see, when the psalmist sees the moon and the stars, he asks, but not really, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. What is man? The, the strongly implied answer is that we are nothing. We are nothing. We are to be considered Less than nothing, given how vast and, and grand God's creation is. If the stars and planets are, are specks, when we look at them, when viewed from below, you know, from such a great distance, just, just all you have to do is imagine the reverse, okay? Just flip it and imagine how we must appear from the outer perimeter of the universe, how is it that the infinite majestic God who created the universe can have any thought for specks of dust like we are? How does it make sense that he has a mind for us, that he actually has a care and a concern for us? Well, David's rhetorical question in the constellation of rhetorical questions that come flooding along with it, I think perfectly expresses our perplexity, our awestruck wonder at the thought of all of this. And I I hope that that it's hitting you the way that it's meant to, that you're not able to just, you know, ho-hum and have these thoughts roll off you like water off of a duck's back. Feel the Feel the perplexity of this question. What is man, given the magnificence of the universe? And by the way, don't forget the context here. You know, this is a psalm of praise. And the idea is that we're never going to be able to worship properly if we aren't awestruck. So, so we sing, Lord, don't let us lose our wonder. That, that would be devastating. We, w- we would be pitiful praisers if we were to ever lose our wonder. The people of God, on the other hand, should, should be observant. And along with that, agog, or whatever fancy word that you want to use. Our, our jaws, our mouth, should literally be hitting the floor when we look around at all that the Lord has done. We should first have wide eyes, and then we should wonder, and that should prompt our worship. That's kind of the pathway. Wide eyes to wonder, to worship. Christians ought to be recognized by our grassy backs, if you will, from time spent wondering, and then we ought to be recognized by our grass-stained knees from time spent worshiping. Let's consider in the fourth place our position. Our position. In verses uh, 5 to 8, this song takes a bit of an unexpected turn. And the hinge is the word yet. That has the function of just kind of conceding that everything prior is exactly true. You know, it, it agrees. It allows that we, are, we were right to supply the, the answer assumed in the rhetorical question the way that we did. We are right to supply the answer nothing when we read, what is man? We're right to acknowledge that. Yet, allowing all of that, the, the word yet, lets us know that there may be more to the story. There may be more to this story. This particular rhetorical question is unique in the sense that the assumed answer is not the full answer. Furthermore, the full answer is one that we would never have assumed. It's one that the logic doesn't readily supply. We would never assume what's about to be revealed to us to be the case if it hadn't been revealed to us. We ask, what is man? And nothing is not the full answer. By the grace of God, we are something. It turns out that we are incredibly significant. Although I want to just right away rush to say, but through nothing of ourselves. And I'll just take a minute to point out how verses 5 to 8 show our God-appointed significance. Consider what verse 5 says about our rank. Our rank. It says that God has made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings. I'm not sure what you're translation says but there's that's a little difficult to translate because this word the word that's translated heavenly beings is Elohim and most of the other places that you see that in scripture it'll be translated like gods small g but plural gods or most of the time it's translated God big G God Elohim and you can imagine maybe what, it, what has gone on here. You can, you can probably guess that that idea would make some translators a little uncomfortable. You know, they're, they're like, are you sure this is right to, to say that, that man is a little lower than God? It doesn't quite sound right. So they opted for another valid translation, which is that in rank, you know, we're just a little lower than the angels, that's that's a f- fair way to in- translate that, I suppose, and that's the tack that even other biblical authors uh, take at certain points. However, if I could just say this, you know, having just studied Genesis together, I think we're in a pretty good position to understand the idea that God has made mankind. A little bit lower than God if I could if I could say that reverently again this would I would not be coming up with this if it wasn't revealed and this harkens back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 where we hear the Lord kind of deliberating about making us in his image and likeness that we would in in all the ways that are appropriate for creatures take on certain of his attributes and qualities of his to to have something, something of his nature. Not exactly, but something of his nature. And this is precisely what God has done. Male and female, he created us. In his image and likeness, he created us. And what a rank. I mean, can you believe that? What an incredible privilege to be crowned With glory and honor. That's something that you expect would be given only to God. But God has graciously designed that we would participate. That he would crown us with glory and honor in our godlike rank. That's incredible to me. And our rank is intimately connected with our responsibility. So this verse talks about not just our rank, but our responsibility. The Lord God had said, let us make man in our image and likeness and let them have dominion, he goes on to say. And the structure of that verse um, shows that these two ideas are intimately connected. We are made to be in, in some ways like God so that we can rule like God. Just like the Lord enjoys this majestic rule and reign, as we sang in verse 1, as his image bearers, a significant part, part of what that means is that he has established us to rule and to reign as his representatives on this earth, in this world that he has made. What a, what a station. Our responsibility is to exercise a certain lordship to have dominion over his, his creation, the work of his hands, to subdue it, or as verse 6 of the psalm puts it, to have all of these things under our feet, everything in order and tamed. That was, that's our responsibility. And then in verses 7 and 8, you can see that the psalmist is just drilling down on some samples of things that were given dominion over, sheep. Oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, you know, fish of the seas. And that might seem to you to be just kind of a random smattering of things, but do you see what the author is doing? He's describing our dominion over every realm of creation. Things in the land, things in the air, things in the water. You know, it's like the military, the, the various branches, the army, the air force, the navy, what have you. These things, when you, when you take them together, what, what's it saying? That we're covering everything. We've got everything under control. This is total dominion. There's not one area or, or realm that mankind is not to govern in. And this is, his, this is our God-given responsibility in light of our god-given rank. Of course, all of that is nothing less than astounding. Maybe you're like me and you're just so familiar with these things that that it's not even registering to you how utterly incredible that is that God would share that, give you that status and give you that privilege. So this is this in itself is astounding and calls for even more praise which is precisely what we see in verse 9. The chorus picks up again and we say oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now it might seem that like we're done and I you know I can see you getting a little bit excited but we can't be done without seeing a a fifth P, a fifth P, and that is our problem. And this brings us to the passage that Glenn read earlier in the service, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. I don't know if you noticed it, but somewhere along the line, this psalm stopped reflecting reality it got to a point where we weren't really tracking with it. You know, that whole bit about feeling really small in the light of space, that's totally realistic. And you you can get that, you can feel that, you can be made to feel that even tonight if you sleep under the stars. But the rest, not so much. You know, all this stuff about God's image and rule and reign and dominion, that doesn't bear much resemblance to reality, does it? You might be saying, I don't see that. I, I, I mean, I see it in scripture. I see it there in Genesis 1 and 2, but I don't see it now. What I do see, what we do see, is everything in disorder. Everything is out from under our feet. What, what we do see is, as uh, Tennyson put it, nature, red in tooth and claw. We see devastation. We see disease. Viruses and cancers. We, we see broken relationships with God. What do you mean have dominion over the world? I can't even get my own family in order. We, we have... We have a, a breach in our relationship with God, not to say nothing of all of the fractures that we have with our fellow man. What has happened? Well, Genesis 3 is what happened. We, we were going along quite nicely uh, in our God-given responsibility to have dominion for, I don't know exactly, but it feels like it was maybe a day. And then mankind wanted more. It wasn't enough to be a little bit lower than God. We wanted to be God. And we fell for that lie of the devil that we would be exactly like God and that we would have be, be able to not just have dominion over the, his, his creation, but we'd actually be able to rise to the realm where we would have dominion over good and evil. And so we disobeyed and fell and the world was plunged ruinously into sin and into the curse so no we don't see that we don't see the latter part of Psalm 8 very well at all and the author of the Hebrews picks this up quoting this quoting this passage that we've been looking at in verses 6 to 8 with a, a few modifications for where he's going. He goes on to say, uh, the author to the Hebrews does in verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. That's got to be the understatement of the century. But here's what we do see. If that's our problem, then I want you to just bask for a minute here in the glorious solution. But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels. And here we're not talking about man in general. We're talking about Jesus, the man, the faithful man, the God man. We're talking about Jesus who was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone Jesus Christ is able to bring things into total dominion to have everything be put under his feet because our our biggest item of disorder our biggest enemy was death and the Lord Jesus Christ defeated that by his sacrifice for our sin on the cross. By his own death. But then by his glorious resurrection. Three days later. And he emerged from that tomb. Triumphant. As the ruling and reigning majestic king. And so we take great joy and comfort in knowing that. Where we have fa- um, failed and fallen flat on our faith. The Lord Jesus Christ has conquered. He, he is the man that uh, we were designed to be and yet failed. He is the man who succeeded. He is indeed the God-man who, even though he was set above all of creation and crown and glory and honor, he did not cling to that, but took on the form of man and put himself lower than the angels for a little while in order to do this great work of redemption and restoration and now he is once again exalted and as pastor jason reminded us he's given the name that is above all names so at the sound of his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father O lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth amen Amen.